Hey, everybody. My name is Justin Murphy, and this is my podcast. It's called Other Life because it's where I talk about all the things I don't get to talk about in normal life. So if you're into it, you should definitely subscribe. And if you'd like to talk to other people interested in what I'm interested in, or ask me questions or request future topics or guests, please just follow the link in the show notes. Finally, I just want to give a huge thanks to all the donors and patrons. I could not keep this podcast running without financial backers, so I'm very grateful. And I would just say that if you enjoy this podcast or my blog or my videos, please do consider signing up to give a little bit of money each month. It would really help me grow out this project, and it would mean a lot to me. So thanks a lot. Now on to the podcast, over and out. Um, how are you doing today, all right? Yeah, fine, yeah. yeah. Excellent. Where are you uh, calling in from, roughly? I'm in my house in Bristol. So, oh. yeah, southwest England. Okay, cool, cool. Yeah, yeah I've yeah. been to I've been to Bristol a bit. Have you been there for? Are you have you been based there for a long time? Yeah, fair while. Uh, yeah, about about twenty years now. So yeah, I've kind of laid down roots, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. Right, right. And you, if I'm not mistaken, you have a position at the Open University. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I'm, uh, I. I've been very. I've had various roles there, so I'm kind of semi-detached for them from them. Really, I don't have a research role as such, but um, I still work for them. So, kind of like my day job right now. Right, and they're a weird university, aren't they? I mean, they're yeah, what, it's kind of them? a distributed entity. Um, it's an extremely large university, and um, sort of born in the the um white heat of uh, the 1960s sort of uh, modernization uh, program you know so um i mean it it has some quite admirable sort of social goals i think it's it's a good it's a good institution if if slightly unwieldy in some ways but Okay. Okay. Yeah. I, I, I've heard different things about the open universities. I've never been to it exactly, but then I've learned that it doesn't necessarily even have uh, locations. It's like, it doesn't exist really. Right. <laughs> it's an abstraction. Right. It's yeah, quite... I mean, we, we have, we do a lot of stuff like this. So there's a lot of online teaching as well as, you know, things that happen in actual rooms, but um, yeah, it's increasingly moved going digital. Right. Do you ever wonder if universities, as they go more and more digital and they try their best to take on these new technologies, do you ever get the sense that they're kind of digging their own graves? <laughs> because at a certain point, it's like, what are they even providing? Yeah, I, I, I don't know. Um, I, I guess, I guess with the, uh, I think the, I, I, I guess proponents of you, you would say it's, it's in the content and the tuition as well as the, 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 the machines we use to deliver it. Um, I think there's there's a certain amount of certain lack of clarity about how to use some of these tools, mm. how best to use them in, in a sense, the, the, you know, in a sense the tools preempt their best use or discovering their use, which is kind of, kind of post-human, I suppose. <laughs> in the yeah, sense there you go. Kind of, the objects are dictating what we do with them to some degree. We're yeah, trying to invent uses for, for for objects in the sense that are just lying around, sort of doing their own thing. Right, right. Yeah. That, well, that's a good segue into into your yeah. work, and I think the larger the larger questions that we might try to discuss today. Do you mind if we just kind of jump right in? There are a few yeah, questions sure. I, I kind of want to ask you. Yeah. yeah. So one is that I've been reading through your book today, uh, this, today and the past few days, this week, and you know. One of the things that 
I thought was kind of interesting about your take, and I'll kind of briefly recapitulate it, but of course you, you can do so in your own words if, if you please. Um, but one of your major messages, I think, is that the future of post-humanity is kind of radically uncertain and, and indeterminate. And anyone with an overly confident story about precisely what, what could happen or what it's going to look like uh, should perhaps not be very trusted. Uh, you emphasize the kind of intrinsically uh, speculative nature of, of of this question, and so your book, you know, is very it's a it's a, it's a book of philosophy, and it's and it attempts to be to be rigorous and hard nosed. But I thought it be it might be interesting to just start off the conversation with. I'm curious what you personally uh, speculate about what post humanity uh, would look like. You know, because you kind of make this argument about how speculation is 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 the order of, of the day here, and that uh, there should be a kind of a lot of speculation about it. So I'm, I'm curious, what do you it, when when you speculate, when you put on your speculator's hat, what does it look like to you? Give us some images. Yeah, um, well, I, as you probably know, I start off the the book with the with 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 this uh, creature I call Churchland's centipede, which is a kind of um, riff off the human centipede, but slightly less disgusting. Mm. Um, and it alludes to a thought experiment that Paul Churchland uh, developed in his uh, 1984 essay, uh, Eliminative Materialism, the Propositional Attitudes. And there he was arguing that uh, mature neuroscience could essentially replace our kind of folk ideas about what people are, what, what beliefs, what desires, what minds are. Um, and he ends with the proposal that um we, we, we you know instead of instead of using language we could just grid link brains so if we had kind of commissures like rather like the corpus callosum that links our two cerebral cerebral hemispheres uh so if the information transfer between brains was as great as the information or as efficient as the information transfer within brains as churchill says language language would with a libraries would become a thing of the past. We'd have libraries of neural stimulation rather than letters. So um, we're so so you know, I guess one one idea that's always fascinated me, and I think I think I kind of thought about this as a as a as a as a troubled, fairly troubled adolescent was was the idea of kind of minds merging into some kind of hive entity rather like borg and essentially eroding the boundary between between persons so in a sense we become um some kind of grid linked entity uh wow um mm -hmm. i i really like um some of charles stross's speculations in accelerando it's a science fiction novel um he brought out a few years ago where he anticipates that um kind of current current corporations might might sort of evolve to the point where they can kind of chew up the solar system and use use the rest of us for kind of computational mass um so that there's kind of that there's all this kind of catastrophic stuff and i'm, I'm also sort of well that seems not too catastrophic but quite normal nowadays yeah right? all, all of that's happening isn't it yeah and then there's kind of intimate post-humanisms. Like um, I really like um, uh, uh, um, Ben Yeager's novel, *A Latropolis*, which is actually just about a guy who moves into his parents' bedroom and never leaves, and just kind of lives entirely online, 
kind of watching porn and um, scapegoating people. And it's this kind of modest retreat from the human community that I find fascinating. You know, I mean, I don't know if it's an interesting question whether whether the protagonist of Amygdala Atropolis is human or post-human, but it kind of raises those questions at a more intimate level. So, yeah, you know, I, like that one. I, I can relate to that because I've basically dropped out of all currently existing institutions and interact only with people on the Internet other than my wife and my family and periodically friends that I see every now and then I, I actually interact with more people ever now, yeah, yeah. but I see less people than ever also. Yeah. So we could actually just be, um, we, we could just be glove puppets or kind of pretending to be, uh, to be human or, or holograms. I don't know. <laughs> right, know. right. Uh, um, but yeah, I mean that sort of intimate kind of post-humanity increasing increasingly interests me. That you know that that, that, that where, where the the kind of boundary between human and inhuman becomes indeterminate and negotiable. Um, but I mean, we can maybe come to that later because it's a sort of outgrowth of the way I'm, I've I've been sort of thinking about the 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 the, the material and post-human life as well. So, okay, right. Right. So I, you're kind of of the view that aesthetics has a particularly important role to play in, in thinking about these things precisely because the, the future is so speculative. Yeah, I'm moving that way. I'm still trying, I, I'm still trying to kind of stake out that terrain and there are systematic reasons why it's difficult to do so, which we mm. could come to. I mean, I, I think it's probably better to start off with the material in post-human life and see why the aesthetic might, might be important in a way but okay but okay sure go on then. It, but yeah. yeah yeah tell me about that yeah. right um well i guess post-human life came out of a dissatisfaction with two narratives about how to think about about the future and how to think about the kind of technological penetration of the human. Um, and one was, I guess, the standard uh, transhumanist story that you, we were getting from people like uh, Bostrom or Max Moore, which saw technology essentially as a means for enhancement and enhancement as essentially improving function, existing functionality. So when, when um, Nick Bostrom writes, so I, I want to be a post-human when I grow up, he means I want to be more intelligent. I want to be more empathetic. I want to be more, um, more, 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 you know, stronger, live longer, better, kinder, whatever. So you can take, if you like, you can box any kind of human trait that we, we find morally or cognitively significant and we can amp it up um, as post-humans. Um, so that's, 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 I mean, cruelly caricatured. That's 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 the kind of um, transhumanist story. And mm -hmm. then there's the critical posthumanist story, which um, sets it up, self up. It, 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 you know, as a, as a kind of critique of of, of that of, of, of transhumanism, arguing that um, that trans. I, I think rightly that transhumanism is a humanism. You know that it in a sense, presupposes that uh, there are certain sort of admirable or superlative moral traits and cognitive traits associated with humanity that we ought to cultivate using technology. So it's kind of 
humanism with with with, with sliders or knobs or whatever yeah. and then the the the, the, the critical post humanists argue that obviously that this is this is philosophically question begging um uh you know because in a sense it presupposes that there's some kind of transcendental human essence that we ought to um uh, uh, uh exemplify um and it also argues this is the critical post-humanist uh, position that in a sense, humans are already post-human to the degree that we're already imbricated with technology. We're already so penetrated by technology, such as writing, language, our use of um, our, our use of sort of smart smart applications, whatever. That in, in a sense, that it, it's ridiculous to try and think in terms of some rupture between the present technologically infused beings that we are and some you know, future life forms. I mean, Andy Clark uses that argument in uh, Natural Born Cyborgs. He says, we've already, out we've always outsourced our cognition to to the world, to the environment, outside the skin bag, you know, so when we use archives, for example. Um, so just doing more of that isn't going to turn us into bad borgs. I mean, I think that's a really bad argument. I mean, I like Andy Clark's work, but I think that's just, you know, that's not good as things stand. Um, and I wanted to think about rupture. I mean, it seemed to me that that developing developing technology is not ma simply a matter of ramping up functionality. It's also a matter of inventing new functions. So email is not just another way of writing a letter. It involves a whole lot more um, uh, uh, relationships between, you know, users. Than, than, than simply writing letters, and obviously the time factor and the, uh, the, the the various functionalities provided by the web complicate that. So, you know, see, it seems to me that the, the, the transhumanist position is embedded in a, a, a potentially um, question, you know, in a questionable conception of how technology changes and how technological change impacts function. Right. So you were kind of just alluding to rates of change. So I wanted to just at the outset, get your take on this popular perception that we are going through a kind of accelerated acceleration, not just a, a speeding up of things, but an acceleration of things. Do you do you subscribe to this? Or are you sympathetic to this kind of empirical model in which things are not just speeding up, but the rate of speed increases is also increasing? I don't know. I mean, I've, I think the problem here is, is 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 how you quantify rate of change. I mean, obviously, you can take certain parameters like, um, you know, the, the I, I don't know, clock speed of computers mm -hmm. or, uh, um, you know, some other quantifiable parameter. Um, and yeah, I mean, there's been. I haven't got the 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 the, the statistics to hand, but I mean, there's obviously been some impressive growth sure. there i'm i'm kind of more interested in qualitative change i mean the right. fact that you know network computers are quite different from mainframe computers in terms of what they do and how they impact right society and i'm also interested in the way technologies catalyze technologies so right. I, mean, I, I mean rather like so you know at this point i i i you know i'd probably agree with nick land that they're they're there's, you know, there we ought to think about positive feedback or self-catalyzing 
technology. You know, that seems to be integral to the way mod modernity works. So I'm I'm kind of less interested in speed, although I mean I think you know as again I think if you can take if you take certain parameters then you 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 can look for for, for acceleration. But I I I I'm I mean the, you know one one model um, basically the kind of S curve model has it yeah that yeah you have periods of of exponential growth um, that is. Growth that's dependent on on on, on rate of change um, in, in in certain parameters. It might be you know the consumption of oil, for example, mm -hmm. in, in in the in the 30s. But those but those tend to bottom out due to resource limits. But then the interesting thing is that something might come along and replace it, and then you get new S curves or or, or, or new points of growth. So, yeah, I, I mean, with reservations. Yeah, I'm sympathetic to what you were saying before about the importance of qualitative changes. Sometimes I'm tempted to the hypothesis that we are seeing an acceleration of qualitative kinds of uh, divergences, you might say. Yeah, yeah. And here I actually think about, I think our mutual um, correspondent, let's say, RS Backer. Um, I saw you've, yeah. you've done some stuff with uh, Backer. You know, I, I'm a big fan of his work and this idea of yeah, of a kind of semiotic apocalypse that seems to be at hand. In some sense, you can kind of see that as partially this accelerationist story, which is quantitative in nature, has to do with, um, you know, increasing rates of change. But with an emphasis precisely on what you were saying about qualitative differences, it's almost as if the qualitative differences that exist between people and communities are themselves uh, accelerating quantitatively. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so uh, Backer has Scott Backer has um, developed the idea of the semantic apocalypse, and it's 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 essentially the view that uh, up till now we've we've disenchanted the natural world through science. Science has disenchanted the natural world by depriving it of any purpose or any meaning. So. You know, we no longer explain the motion of um, the motion of bodies by alluding to their to, the, to their purpose, whether they're sublunary or superlunary, as in Aristotle. You know, we don't we, we don't say that 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 uh, I don't know planets want want to achieve circular or elliptical orbits. We we've got purely quantitative um, uh, quant quantitative dynamics to deal with that. You know, so there's nothing meaningful about the way the natural world works according to this account and science in a sense has stripped away this 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 sort of enchant this 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 uh this this human projection that we used to call nature somehow um somehow filled with purpose filled with meaning um now we know it's just you know, it's just rocks and atoms and stuff tumbling around in the void. But then the next phase is that, according to Backer, is that we turn that those same methods inward. We turn them towards the human mind. And he, I mean, he develops this idea beautifully in his his novel Neuropath, which I think anybody who's interested in these issues should read. It's it's a, it's a terrific thriller, but it's it's uh, it takes you down some incredibly dark. Sort of speculative corridors, um, 
And there he, he kind of, vent, you know, his character ventriloquized the idea that eventually some kind of mature neuroscience would show that not only is the natural world devoid of meaning, but actually there's no meaning in here in the sense the brain is just another dynamical system, an incredibly complicated one that we, we, we attribute meaning to simply because we, 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 we have this kind of first-person cartoon version of, mm-hmm. of, of of the brain which is good enough to kind of get around socially good enough to for some right. kind of self-understanding but it doesn't actually tell us what we are so you know fundamental to this idea is we don't know what we are right you know, we just have a kind of cart we're living with a cartoon version and of of, of the, that we call subjectivity right how did you first get connected with uh Scott Backer, by the way, I was curious about. The yeah, connection. that's really interesting because I read his. Um, I read. I started reading his um, uh, his Second Apocalypse books a long time ago, well before I was even thinking about this stuff, and you know, thought they were kind of brilliantly dark. You know, this brilliantly dark fantasy. Um, I think we we kind of got together around the time that the of the kind of speculative um material speculative realism sort of blogging boom um because we kind of realized that we were arguing along similar lines for a kind of broadly naturalistic um metaphysics you know against you know i think what we saw at the time as um you know a kind of some residually kind of conservative um, or, or, or mystificatory elements within inspective realism. Um, so that's kind of how we got together. I mean, I I can't give you an exact episode, I, 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 but I, I think it was sort of within the blogosphere. And then we, Scott interviewed me for the, um, around the time the book came out and we, we, we've had, um, I, We've had a, you know, we've had a productive dialogue since then. I haven't, we, we haven't, uh, not so much perhaps in the last year. I think we, you know, for various personal reasons, we've both been busy at our own stuff. But, mm. um, you, you know, I think we're still working along, you know, similar kind of parallel lines. Right. Yeah. So, um, yeah, but I, I mean, I, I, I think his fiction is exemplary. You know, if you want to think about if you want to think about the the kind of fragility of a worldview and the way a, a, a particularly and i think particularly about the second apocalypse series the way he explores a kind of magic magical metaphysics as a way of showing how the the magicians and the sorcerers can't really conceive just how contingent and how fragile and how ultimately awful and inhuman their position is within the world it's it's you know they're consistently you know whereas tolkien's wizards in in a sense have deep insight into the nature of his world um mm-hmm. uh um backers wizards are in in a sense dealing with again with a kind of cartoon that simply allows them to manipulate the world without really understanding it right right yeah that's very well put and that, now- that kind of destroys them eventually i'm that's probably a spoiler but <laughs> spoiler spoiler yeah. alert yeah um david when you look out at the popular debates around things like ai and the singularity and and these other takes on kind of our post-human near future do you detect in that a kind of aesthetics 
I mean, I think I think there is there's an obvious way in which aesthetics can kind of substitute for discipline speculation, like you know certain forms of fiction. Um, that's a good question. I, I <sighs> the reason I'm curious is because yeah. when I read a lot of the more mainstream, really influential takes right now on artificial intelligence and the the near future. I I find a lot of it quite impressive and useful. I think of someone in particular like Nick Bostrom as kind of representing yeah. this, this kind of dominant, sophisticated and influential mainstream. And it's very sophisticated, but you know this kind of style of thinking and writing. It's extremely rationalist. It's It certainly presents itself as nothing but the most kind of hard-nosed uh, theoretically and empirically um, kind of disciplined and rigorous uh, perspective on things. Uh, in other words, it kind of aesthetically presents itself as evacuated of all aesthetics. And right, okay, okay. And yeah, and I'm, you know, I also I, I come from a very different background as you, I think, and and I don't um, necessarily uh, personally think in a lot of the categories that you've cultivated o- over your life. But one thing that I have always seen, and I do kind of speak about and write about a lot, is how much of contemporary political positioning and, and political speech and activity is essentially aesthetic at its core. That a lot of the different political and intellectual subcultures that you see emerging today, they present themselves as having fundamentally different intellectual positions, but often it's not really um, a fundamentally logical or intellectual mm-hmm. differences that are that are really at play. It's, it's different tastes, it's different cliques, it's different yeah. Um, sociological and aesthetic uh, signaling games that are actually going on. And that's why I was just wondering if if your perspective so deeply steeped in aesthetics, you know, has anything to say about uh, the current kind of image, if you will, of the kind of dominant scientific rationalism around the future of, of intelligence? Yeah, I'm, uh, I, I think what I'll do at this point is say a bit about where I do stand and the way I've used that that kind of speculation, and then tr- try to get some kind of systematic grip on 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 what speculative posthumanism is committed to. And then I, th- I think we could see That's better great. where the aesthetic Please do. kind of might have a a place within it. So, okay, so um, I, I, I guess the central the central chapter of my book is called the disconnection thesis, which I also published. Um, as a essay in a book called the singularity hypothesis which which was kind of mainly edited by transhumanists and so uh computer scientists and it's it's kind of fairly fairly much on the the kind of analytic end of philosophically um but the in in, in the disconnection thesis i used the idea of a technological singularity to develop a kind of more abstract conception of the post-human which in a sense is 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 deliberately non-aesthetic um for reasons we'll come to so what do i mean by the technological singularity well it's the idea that at some point we could develop um i don't know some kind of human equivalent or greater than human uh, machine intelligence and a greater than human machine intelligence would be much better producing intelligence than humans could do it much more quickly much more efficiently this is the assumption and the 
the output of that that process, which would be, if you like, not AI but AI plus, would then be still better, and you'd have a runaway intelligence explosion as 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 each generation was a, of uh, of intelligence was able to produce yet yet smarter copies of itself. You know, to, to at the point at which you have some kind of asymptote sort of nearing infinity, and at that point, according to Werner Vinge, we're like you know, we're, we're, we're like uh, slugs confronted with the rise of mammals. You know, we're, right. we, we have we're an ant trying to conceptualize a human. We're 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 we're, we're, we're confronting veritable gods. Um, so that that that's one that's kind of one sort of obviously drastic radical story about how a post-human dispensation could arise. Um, and I don't know whether it's possible or whether it could happen, but it, you know, it's one model, it's one mechanism. Um, but what interested me in the disconnection thesis was not so much the, um, if you like, the co cogency of the hypothesis, uh, but the, the the more general idea that that the human could that the, the, the whatever successor species or entity to the human could arise through technology could be radically alien or radically different from us, you know, in ways that ahead of that rupture we couldn't even describe. Um, and so I developed the idea of the, the disconnection as a, as if. As, as as an account of what the po what the post human in this futurist sense is, which is namely any entity that, in a sense, has sufficient autonomy, functional autonomy, to um, go its own way, to go feral. And just as domestic animals can become feral and leave the human system, um, a post human would be any entity. Could be biological. It could be. A cyborg. It could be some synthetic life form. It could be an AI. It could be people crispered into vampires. Uh, any entity that, in a sense, can form um, a pocket outside the human socio-technical system by virtue of some process within that system. So it's, if you like, a radical divergence of some right. kind. And it, oh, gone. Yeah. So one of the things the disconnection thesis does is it 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 allows us to say something about what the post-human would be like without presuming there's some kind of human essence. Like, doesn't assume that there's some set of necessary conditions for uh, humanity that would be absent. Uh, it's treating the human more as a system, as a lump, a cohesive lump. <laughs> consisting of biological humans, our institutions, our, our machines, functioning together. Um, and the post-human is, is, is something that may originate in that field, but in a sense is able to function independently of it in a way that none of our technologies are able to do. Well, I don't know, maybe Voyager leaving the solar right. system. But it's not able to, it's still doing what we designed it to do. It hasn't come back to... Um, you know, to uh, uh, engage us in, 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 you know, in philosophical debate. Or, or, and so the, the disconnection in your disconnection thesis is the disconnection between that emergence of AI plus or whatever it might be and or, us or no? Or any kind of, any kind of uh, non-human entity that arises through technological change. So even saying AI plus is too specific for you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, okay. it, it, it could be. It, it, it might not. In, it might not have to involve um, uh, uh, some kind of intelligence explosion or rapid increase of intelligence. Um, the bioethicist Darian Meacham has um, used a disconnection thesis to speculate about what he calls a phenomenological um, change, a, a difference in phenomenological species concept, and that's the idea that certain kinds of technological change could introduce social groups that are so strange to us that in a sense we can't um emote with them we can't empathize with them we can't treat them as like us oh wow you know so that's a kind of yeah a kind of another discrete sort of disconnect it's not a kind of radical ontological change but it's a form of it's a kind of a form of social um uh, dissensus or social okay. splitting off you know so it, it, it's deliberately non-specific precisely because there are no post-humans in the sense that i'm talking about so we can't treat post-humanism po- we can't treat post-humanism as if it was an observational science like ornithology mm. you know we're dealing with purely speculative forms of agency at this stage Right. So what do you call that, that other entity that emerges? Do you you call that the post-human? Yeah, we call, I mean, it's a theory of what post-humans are. It's, I mean, in a sense, it's getting at our, what what is our moral concern with, with stories like Frankenstein or uh, the singularity thesis or, um, I don't know, Skynet in, in, in the term. What our moral concern is that something we made. Right, but it could, it could be it could be radically other than us to the it point of being... It could be radically other. It might not care about us. Yeah. You know, it might just find its own little ecological niche and do its thing. You know, it needn't be a, a threatening right. entity. But the okay, point but is, I... until it happens, in a sense, we have no ethical grip on it. Right, okay, gotcha. It's but ethos I'm, I... is unknown. I am right to understand that the disconnection in the disconnection thesis is the disconnection, the disconnection between us and it. Yeah. Or, or right, it might yes. be a disconnection between us and descendants of us. Yes. You know, okay. because in, in some very broad sense, the post-human is descended from so us my, in, in a wide sense, as I, I say. Gotcha. That's great. So my follow-up question would be, this is something I've actually thought about a lot do we necessarily have the capacity to even detect it when it emerges? In other words, could there not already be some sort of post-human entity or agencies floating around us, interacting with us that we aren't even able to detect? Is that possible? Uh, especially if you take this idea of, of, a, of a disconnect seriously. Yeah, I, I suppose it's it's possible in principle, and it's it's um, it's something that came up in discussion um, at the actually last Monday when I was in a, another Google Hangout talking about Reza Negrestani's new book, and we were talking about a particular kind of a particularly exotic kind of post-human that I, I, I talk about called a hyperplastic, which we could we could come to later. But the whole point about hyperplastics is that they're so strange that we could, we wouldn't be able to rec- they're, they're agents that we couldn't recognize as agents. So, right. you know, th- I guess the idea was, well, maybe, you know, maybe they could be living in our wallpaper or, 
mm-hmm. kind of under our beds, and we wouldn't notice because they're just too weird for us to even figure as 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 kind of agent like. Um, I mean, in the book, I'm kind of assuming that that that, that in some sense, post-humans would be powerful. I don't mean they'd be able to rip up planets, but they'd, in a sense, be independent of us enough to escape the kind of uh, the functional bonds of of kind of human association. You know, so again, going back to the domestic animal metaphor. You know, as long as domestic animals, say farm animals, have a are within the human system, their existence depends on them fulfilling functions for that system. If they can, in a sense, discover their own functions, their own purposes, then they can exist outside the system, and that implies a certain amount of power, certain amount of independence. Maybe not, you know, not 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 very spectacular compared with Skynet, but some kind of independence and that's still more independence than any any of our machines have shown up till now mm. so you know okay. so uh, and it's important i'm still dealing with agency which we can also come to later no that the, the disconnection thesis is a the- theory about agents and in a sense the agency parameter is important here it's contested and, and, and uh, go on and tell me about tell me about the agency parameter yeah yeah well this is in a sense, the disconnection thesis is one component of speculative post-human. It tells us what, what post-humans are. Um, but another component of post-humanism is a more epistemological um, thesis, and that's what I call unbounded post-humanism. That, 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 that's distinguished from what I call bounded post-humanism. So bounded post-humanism is roughly the claim that we can kind of get a handle on what post-humans would be like because we're agents of a certain kind and any significant post-humans would be agents of a similar kind, even if they've got different bodies, different substrates. You know, so... Um, so that, that there's a link with left accelerationism here because a lot of proponents of left accelerationism ray brastia um for example have argued that in a sense what's important about agi and artificial intelligence is it's an unfolding in a sense of a of 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 a collective form of intelligence that we already exemplify through our social relationships and through which we um, acquire uh, the capacity to reflect and uh, uh, explore um, our, our moral and cognitive autonomy. You know? So it's this, this kind of enlightenment idea of agency, of self-reflection through shared language games. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so if any significant agent would have to would have to be, say, a language user, you know, that automatically restricts the possibility space of what post-humans could be. And it kind to some extent, it circumscribes the conceivable weirdness or strangeness of post-humans because at least we could talk to them. You know, that we, we, you know, that, that some kind of mm-hmm. process of radical translation or interpretation would be a plausible project, you know, because they, 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 they would be sapient self 
self-reflexive concept used as much as we are. So that's bounded post-humanism. And in a sense, bounded post-humanism is, it's an interesting thesis. Uh, it's morally, in some ways, morally um, more compelling the unbounded post-humanism because it, in a sense, gives us a handle on what we're getting into if we're, in a sense, exp you know, developing our intelligence through technological means. We, 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 in a sense, we're increasing our, our, our um, cognitive moral autonomy mm. as a collective. Um, unbounded post-humanism says, well, actually, we don't have anything like that handle on the future. We don't know that the only significant agents around are language users or Dasein or... Um, Trans or Kantian transcendental subjects, um, you know, whatever your conception of a, of a morally or persons, you know, whatever your conception of a morally significant agent, in, unbounded posthuman says, well, we just don't know that they're out there in post post posthuman possibility space. It might be something much stranger that we don't yet have the categories for thinking about, and we won't until they emerge. So in a sense, unbounded post-humanism gives us less handle on, on less of a future-proof kind of grip on post-human possibility. Right. Um, so in the book, I, 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 I deal with that by developing a minimal notion of agency, which is roughly um, that, that the idea of a self-maintaining system able to kind of use its environment to furnish its needs and perhaps enter into other arrangements with other similarly with other similar or different agents so it's the idea of a functionally autonomous entity and we are functionally autonomous insofar as we're significantly flexible but there could but it, but but, but uh, functional autonomy is psychology free it doesn't say anything about the psychology of the agent it just says what it can do Mm. So you know, okay, that's that's, that's, that's really... a minimal agency conception, uh, and uh, you know, so in a sense, that's 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 a way of kind of saying something about posthumans without investing in a very strong claims about their their moral or psychological nature. Okay, so that's interesting. Though it's easy to imagine that there are pretty difficult boundary problems with that conception of agency, right? So if that was the full extent of the criteria as you just laid it out and there's not, you know, if you're not missing anything that might be in the text from just a short description, then it's easy to make the argument that something like, let's say capitalism is an agent, right? It's yeah. a kind of loosely integrated uh, kind of uh, emergent entity at a kind of higher yeah. order. And it, it seems to tell us what to do on some level to promote itself and to reproduce itself. Uh, so does your, does, does your theory kind of allow for these sort of systemic, uh, loosely integrated uh, entities to be conceived of as agents that are that are possibly manipulating us over and above our heads? Or would you say no to that? Yeah, I'm not. I, I mean, that that's something I thought about um, in in relation to technological systems as well, which are also, in, in a sense, uh, I'm 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 I probably should be more interested in capitalism than I am in the book. Um, but I am interested in modernity as a kind of particular diagram for linking technologies 
and for if you like long range influences between technologies and technological mutations um so you could th so you could think about you could think of globe you know the planetary technological network if you like as a as a single system my my problem with that is that it's not obviously a self maintaining system it, because it's too changeable it's too you know it's 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 it's, it's you know it's it's not and it's not it 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 doesn't obviously have you know needs in the same way that a, an organism or a more localized agent has needs but i i agree that that's actually that's still a point of in, potential instability within the account right or 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 even more to the point might be the example of the corporation yeah. Which in a country such as the United States has a more or less a legal status of an individual entity. Yeah. And to the degree that it's, it's, it, it, it's codifications kind of more really directly shape the behaviors and options of people within that organization. It, it that gets really close to meeting your minimal conception yeah. of, yeah. of agency. And actually, right? That's fine. I mean, there, there, there's a whole, philosophical literature on group agents you know the idea that nations corporations armies in a sense can be treated as agents with intentions and purposes and um their own if you like systems of deliberation right right you know, so it, it, it's actually not too problematic I, I i guess that gets interesting once once you speculate about corporations actually not needing wetware anymore mm -hmm. you know in a sense becoming purely autonomous you know technologically autonomous in some way as Stross proposes in in uh, in, in accelerando in the, in the mm. I was alluding to earlier yeah so I, I don't think i've got i haven't got any problem with that it's 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 i think it's an easier example to deal with than say taking a whole economic system or a whole technological system although i agree that that there is you know, the potential problem there for me. Right. Well, this is interesting. And I, I, to me, this is very promising and fruitful philosophical terrain, because if you look at the current research and discourse around AI, and I know this is not your wheelhouse exactly, but, you know, people like uh, Eliezer Yudkowsky and Nick Bostrom mm -hmm. and these types of people who are really interested in what they call AI safety, they have a very particular viewpoint in which their concern is that machine learning research and different types of AI research are getting to the point where possibly one fine day in some way that we don't fully understand, we get to that inflection point where a technical discovery is instantiated in some way that sets off a, 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 a chain of reactions that escapes our control. Uh, it, it, it's most you know concretely imagined in a scenario that you kind of alluded to before, which is the um, you know, the, the self-improving yeah, vector yeah. that once, once machine intelligence becomes sufficiently general and self-improving, that's when you can imagine a kind of what, you know, what Nick Bostrom calls uh takeoff, takeoff scenarios. Yeah, yeah. And so your, your, the, the thinking that you've done around how to, how to, how to think about agents and, and how to accurately and rigorously think about that, that problem, I think is really relevant because one thing that I've never quite been able to swallow about the the dominant AI research and, and the popular mental model there is 
that my my sense is that there there's some there's something really missing about the entities involved, about the yeah. agents, if you will. Um, you know, because my sense is that they kind of sneak in through the back door, a kind of aesthetics. This is what I was asking you about before. I wonder what you think about this. They seem to sneak in the back door a certain image. Oh, sorry. Sorry. Can you, I don't know if you ask my wife to <laughs> help me with that. Um, thanks, son. Um, there's a certain image there that is uh, basically um, this idea that just suddenly, as if almost magically, uh, a kind of entity or agent emerges uh, that wasn't necessarily there there to begin with. Um, and so there seems to be a little bit of a sleight of hand. And I don't even think it's on purpose. But I think that in in trying to think these things through, people have um, the the most sophisticated way of thinking about it has kind of uh, uh, consensually consensually kind of uh, deluded themselves into like a very particular kind of storybook um, or kind of cinema. It's an almost kind of cinematic, yeah. Is it um, kind of like animism in a way. Yeah, like yeah, exactly. Something like a soul. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, or, exactly. Or, or, a, 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 or a human soul, <laughs> or something right. we could recognize as a soul to something that is is not remotely human. That's right. That's right. And so there's this there's this kind of m mental model in which, because of uh, a certain degree of intelligence research uh, taking off, that in some sense a new type of entity or agent will emerge that has never that we've never seen before that will kind of escape our escape our grasp. And I so I just wonder if all of the thinking that you've done on this, does it speak to this at all? You know, does it? It does. I mean, I'll, I'll give you one example um, that, that, because you, you mentioned this in our earlier, um, you know, it's preliminary dis discussion. Uh, and that's um, Steve Omahundro's um, piece right. on the basic AI drives. And it, it's kind of a, a model for some of these other speculations. So Omahundro asks us to, suppose that there there exists some kind of self-modifying robot that has a really good mental model or internal model of its own functioning so it's able to intervene in its own structure it's able to you know uh, modify its own brain and body in ways to in ways that allow it to uh, achieve its goals better you know so it's a self-improving um ai we can suppose is embodied in some way right um and he he suggests that such an ai would follow a certain rational maxim which is given that it had certain categorical goals certain if you like life defining goals at a particular point in its existence it would want to kind of clamp those in place to ensure that subsequent self interventions didn't erase or delete them you know so you know, to use Bostrom's uh, example, if it involved making paper clips, it would want to. So suppose, you know, suppose at time t, our, our self-modifying robot wanted to um, make paper clips or count grass, grass uh, leaves of grass. That's mm -hmm. that's that's its kind of preference. Then it would want to, if you like, lock those preferences into place uh, to ensure that. It, it, they weren't erased by future self-modifications. It would, you know, th that that way, any later self-modification would ensure that that it just became a better paperclip maker or a better grass counter, not not some, not not 
some other form of life. Right. Um, so my worry was just how that that kind of quite folk psychological model could apply to a self-modifying system of the type that's being envisaged and my worry was that well if you, if you think about you know if you take a plausible theory about how um representations in our mind reach out to the world that is how they acquire representational content how our value how how whatever systems circuits in us that determine our values reach out to those valued items then it seems that we we need some kind of holism that is some kind of fairly radical relationality is is, is essential so that if I have some circuit in my brain that ensures that I, I don't know, I like, I, I, I need to drink water every couple of hours. Um, there's a limit to how much you can interfere with the rest of my brain while ensuring that that circuit still means drink water rather than something else. Because, you know, there's nothing, you know, hugely different, but, different about one neural circuit and another it's in a sense the way they're all related to one another that gives them some kind of and and, and within our bodies that gives them some kind of purchase on the world mm -hmm. um, but within a, a radically self-modifying system that the, the functional role of these representations would be radically indeterminate that is they they'd lose the specificity that they'd need to actually mean something fixed like Paper clips good or grass counting's good, um, and that so if, if so in a sense by virtue of its power by virtue of its of its hyper agency this system in a sense would not be able to solve the problem of clamping itself to certain uh, to cert to certain values because it would always be faced with having to find the context in which those circuits that represent its 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 values still represent its values and those are just more circuits which can still or more um networks that can still be included within yet more networks for which the same problems arise so it's a kind of recursively kind of unsolvable problem for 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 that for that system therefore to think of it in a sense, as 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 having having these kind of rather human-like meanings and human-like phenomenology seems to be misconceived. We're actually talking about something whose experience and whose uh, represent cognitive economy is something that we can't really understand. I mean, we're we're plastic, sure, but we're not hyperplastic. We're not able to arbitrarily change our bodies um you know in line with mm -hmm. you know on on the on the hoof kind of uh requirements so you know that that that's that's one idea i mean it, it links up with this idea of unbounded posthumanism because it is i'm not suggesting even that hyperplastics are possible i'm simply suggesting that if so, if you invest some something with this sort of some end, some agent with with radical 
powers of self-modification, then we have to ask serious questions about whether it could be anything like the agents we already know about and whether we can treat it as having the same kinds of drives as any kind of agent that we know about. Right, right. So you think the you think that Omohundro's take is guilty of a kind of anthropomorphism? Yeah, I think so. And I think you can you can show why by but by, by you know by invoking fairly plausible assumptions about what 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 a theory of content and a theory if you like of the purchase of a representational system on the world would have to look like. Right. Okay. Do you want to say a little bit about where assemblage theory comes into play? Yeah. Um, I mean, I haven't used it for a while, but it, I, I, it, it does, it does function as a kind of um, cement, you know, like metaphysical cement within the book. Um, assemblage theory says that the world consists of assemblages. So it's an ontology. It's a, theory about what what the world is like um, and an assemblage is any cohesive um, system of of entities they needn't be entities of the same kind it, you know it could be animals humans machines environments um, that by virtue of the relationship between those entities acquire certain emergent powers and properties so Point of view. The point is, an assemblage is not simply an arbitrarily, arbitrarily related um, set. You know, I mean, myself. Um, you know, an arbitrary sock in my drawer and um, some object floating in the mid-Atlantic is not an assemblage because we don't interact in any interesting ways. Assemblage is a mutually interacting systems which acquire emergent properties. But they don't have essences. That's really important. You know, they, they can add bits, lose bits, undergo modification without um, ceasing to exist. They, they, you know, there's, there's no kind of uh, conceptual threshold, in a sense, which determines where one assemblage ends or one begins. In a sense, it's what assemblages do and how they differentiate themselves from one another that does that so you know that's kind of a lewd I, I guess it's 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 it derives from uh Deleuze's transcendental empiricism the idea that in a sense what 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 differentiates the world aren't aren't the concept conceptual frameworks we impose upon it but actually the way entities within the world kind of can cavort and interact and differentiate from each other that's important that's right in a sense the source of order and of course manuel de Landa has developed this into it you know in, in the light of dynamic systems theory and uh um complexity theory um but as i said what it allows me to do in the book is to talk about unities without essences and that's as i alluded to in the um in in the uh, disc, my account of the disconnection thesis means that we can talk about the human and the post-human without commitment to some kind of essentialist account of what the human is. I mean, it just seems fairly, you know, there may be in a, a right, you know, for all I know, there is some kind of human essence, but that seems fairly implausible, you know. Right. So, you know, we don't need to, we don't need to even invoke that. We can just think about the way assemblages 
split off, encounter one another, perhaps form new entities or or, or or generate events at the juncture between assemblages. So in a sense, disconnection is an event at the juncture between one assemblage and another. You know? Okay, that's very good. That's very good. And that's kind of an antidote really to the anthropomorphisms and the, and, and the problem I was talking about before, where there's this tendency in a lot of the AI research, I feel like to to kind of sneak in the back door certain uh, particular discrete agents or entities that that emerge somehow um, in, in some unspecifiable way. Because the assemblage, if you, if you think in terms of assemblages, you're able to forego that that temptation right. or that kind of habit that habit of thought. Yeah, and, yeah, so, yeah. yeah. You know, it's a realist account. It's not, um, you know, it's it, it it's not it's not saying that the world is unstructured. The world is structured, but it's it's things interacting with other things that gives that structure, not the language or the concepts that we bring to it. So right. it fits in with a, you know, in a sense, one of the reasons I call speculative post-human humanism speculative post-humanism is obviously a riff of speculative realism it's a realist account of the future or the deep technological future which assumes that our concepts don't necessarily give that future its shape it's mm. it's it's history you know and in a sense history is the formation of assemblages from other assemblages or interact or rises out of interactions between the these heterogeneous uh systems you know but it's not it, it it doesn't have to you know i think it can be as, as delander does it can be unpacked in fairly clear sensible terms it's I, I don't think i'm saying anything particularly exotic or weird to say that right. you know a social system can consist of lots of parts of different kinds that's right i you think, know, I think these parts right. can play away you know that's, that's also really important that, that they're detachable Right. I think yeah. the divergence, I think the divergence is that in the more dominant kind of scientific rational rationalist kind of analytical modes of people like Bodstrom or Yudkowsky, the there's a certain bias. And again, I almost want to call it an aesthetic in uh, certain scientific modes, hyper rationalist modes where there's just a preference, a stylistic kind of preference for that, which is tractable. Yeah. Um, and this is not necessarily defended or or substantiated anywhere, but it, it really is a kind of arbitrary preference or taste, really, in some sense. Um, and it comes from, I think, many sources. It comes from a kind of uh, sort of industrial source. There's just, uh, you know, in general, uh, it's more profitable to engage in research that 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 is tractable, that can give you formal proofs of of, of new puzzles and to prove game theoretic models and and things of this nature. Um, that's always had a kind that's always been correlated that way of thinking about what's what te- what is preferable kind of model has always been correlated with industry and and techno science right so there, there's a whole kind of historical kind of aesthetic um scientific kind of clustering going on there right. and, and then the more philosophical approaches that that you represent they're not any less rigorous like it's not any it's not any uh less close to empirical detail it, the, but it's a different kind of tradition with 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 somewhat different preferences or or you could argue aesthetics, which, which is that um, you're not necessarily so interested in what's tractable. Um, you're willing to take on a little bit more complexity, even yeah. if it doesn't give us a handle for some kind of 
industrial uh, intervention. And so this, I think, is one way to understand that these kind of diverging takes on, on this problem right now. So for people like you who talk about assemblage theory and these kinds of uh, seemingly more abstract, more philosophical perspectives, you know, people from a more scientific perspective might say to someone like you, well, hey, that's that's too abstract. That's not really useful. That's not going to solve anything. So you get this very much from someone like uh, Eliezer Yudkowsky, who's really on all the time about how you have to be solving real problems. You you know, if, you, if your contribution to AI research or to thinking about the future of intelligence or the future of humanity, if it's not solving really concrete kind of mathematical puzzles, then then it's not it, it's not meaningful. It's not actually yeah. contributing. But in fact, what I get from people like you is this kind of reminder that, in fact, it could just be the case that what is really happening empirically is something that in its very structure or nature uh, defies defies w- what is tractable to us, that our preference for what's tractable is actually um, preventing us from really getting a clear mapping of of precisely what is the problem. And I, 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 that's my kind of perspective on, on the current kind of post-humanity uh, debates, because I think people like you have their finger on, you have your finger on something really important, um, but it doesn't necessarily lead to like in particular industrial interventions. Uh, and so, but, but the problem is precisely everyone who's kind of has their mind yeah. and energies colonized by the search for industrial interventions or something yeah. like that. No, I'm, you know, I'm, I, I, I'm, I'm not going to be, you know, producing a new translation app anytime soon. My, <laughs> yeah. my, 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 my Java programming skills, which mostly forgotten at this point, you know, just we're never even up to that. I mean, I, I think I've programmed a bit of music software, written a bit of music software, which kind of works. But, you know, so no. in any case, you know, I don't have the skill set. But um, I was also going to mention that analytic philosophy, in a sense, has similar. I mean, I use analytic philosophy. I'm not kind of again analytic mm-hmm. philosophy. But uh, one of the problems with analytic philosophy is precisely it, 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 it it um, it aims to provide you know fairly delineated delineated accounts of concepts and differences between concepts and you know like a person you know what do we mean by a person well it's you know some kind of some uh, psychological system that's able to sort of reflect upon its desires and decide the principles according to which it it lives you know there are sort of various kind of analytic accounts of that and it assumes that you know there's some mapping between the kind of concepts we bring to these philosophical problems and what's out there in the world that we're in a sense carving the world in its joints simply by sitting in our armchair and actually um uh, 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 prescribing necessary and sufficient conditions for x or why and that i mean that doesn't seem to be compatible with a you know even a modest realism you know if you assume the world is you know autonomous with respect to the way we think about it there's no prima facie reason to assume that you know what what we do in our armchairs is going to kind of delineate it in any kind of interesting way i mean maybe what science does does but science is in a sense empirically responsive um in in, in ways that 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 uh, um traditional philosophy isn't 
so yeah i mean i, th- I think you know sim- i think simply by adopting realism we can cut through a lot of this and say well you know in a sense the fu- you know whatever the future's like you know it's not the way we think about it that's going to determine the structure of that that dispensation or what what kind of entities they'll they'll be that's going to actually be determined on the ground and through you know hugely complex historical processes right right yeah i mean i to me the irony here is kind of that when you think in terms of assemblages and these kind of less tractable perspectives right like you're you're not specifying specific utility functions that can then be you know kind of uh tested or instantiated but you're actually functions of what yeah Yeah. right for what the the irony is that these types of uh more general and abstract perspectives actually feel like in some sense they do give more traction on what's actually happening even if it's not kind of traction that you can intervene in because like to me i look at all of the ai researchers and people like that and it's it seems ob- it seems beyond obvious to me that we are uh kind of in an escalating arms race of intelligence uh increasing and whether we like it or not i mean no amount of hand wringing to me seems uh anywhere near being able to stop the the forward march of escalating intelligence research and yet the people there there are all these people who are talking about it and debating it and the irony to me is that the the some of the smartest people who are debating it and trying to talk about oh we have to you know implement safety and and, and do this, things like that those people are actually the ones who are most obviously just kind of pawns in an assemblage <laughs> that, <laughs> that they that they don't yeah. fully that they don't fully understand in part because they're not willing to take seriously kind of more speculative and abstract yeah um ideas of how assemblages actually work <laughs> well I, I think so you know i think some you know i think pe- people actually working in artificial intelligence are obviously interested in generating systems with certain capacities like for example being able to learn a language in i don't know the human equivalent of 30 years rather than the human equivalent of say 2000 years in terms of the, the 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 kind of examples that they're presented with, which is, seems to be currently the case in in, uh, in 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 translation software, you know that it works through huge corpuses of examples, and whereas human beings just kind of learn, you know, from, obviously from you know applying. Um, alluding to Chomsky's poverty of stimulus argument, you know, we learn from a pretty small base. You know, even deaf people learn, blind people learn language. So, you know, you, you want to get, you know, I mean, I, I, I use this example because I was talking with somebody from Google, um, DeepMind, who's working on this problem um, last week. And that's, that's, that's his goal. And it's, it seems to be a perfectly reasonable goal if that's, that's your, your area of inquiry i mean i you know i don't see anything kind of inherently naive about that i mean that that seems to be a very interesting goal to pursue to 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 create a system that doesn't just mimic language but in a sense has some kind of that learns quickly but also flexibly and is able to apply its knowledge across domains you know exhibiting some something like domain generality um and you know i mean i i guess so i'm i'm, I'm not going to sort of 
yeah, that seems to be an interesting goal, an interesting proposition to explore. Right, right. So we have a few questions from people, if you don't mind, some random yeah, I haven't actually seen anything in my chat window, but I don't know. I've been I've been making notes of them as they. Okay, that's up. fine. Yeah, so a few came up earlier. So um, one is you're in the mirror, by the way. Just yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, do you ever have any? Do you have any plans to publish any of your fiction as as, uh, yeah, like, that, as in book form or something like that? Yeah. Um, I I do. I mean, I I I've been publishing sort of short pieces. Um, I mean, I should I should say that I I I, I in a sense before I I got interested in in back into academia a, academia, I thought I might want to be some kind of writer, but then I realised that I'm not I'm not really gifted when it comes to narrative, you know, and I, I'm probably more interested. I'm more into kind of you know, highly condensed sort of experimental works. But yeah, I mean, I've got, there are a few things out there. In fact, I published some very short pieces this weekend. You can find them on my, linked on my Twitter or Facebook accounts. Um, Just stuff that I have lying around. (laughs) I thought I might as well do something with. Um, I've got a, yeah, I've got a, so I've got a number of projects. One is a longer form experimental work um, that I just need some time to finish because I just haven't had it recently. But uh, that 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 may come out in the next year or so. Um, also, a, 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 a possible collection of erotic fiction that I might be producing for Void Front Press. Um, kind of stuff, if you like, on the border erotic, erotica and horror. Hmm. and uh speculative stuff so again ma- mainly mainly short pieces but uh um, yeah that that kind of interests me a lot at the moment do you have any um, do you have any spicy takes on sex robots yeah i don't know i just find find all that really boring <laughs> uh i i in, in the end i find sort of um kind of talking to people or thinking about about uh the erotic far more interesting or or doing it obviously but a kind of yeah i don't know i i suppose perhaps non-anthropomorphic sex robots which in a sense don't simply replicate what humans already do for each other perhaps potentially quite interesting um maybe i could write something about that um, that would be yeah that would be interesting to explore interesting yeah that's an interesting hypothesis yeah um, i mean that, that but most of it yeah i mean just you know just 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 uh the idea of a co- you know highly technologically advanced masturbation aid is you know right. not that interesting <laughs> to me, but, but it seems to interest other people so fair enough yeah interesting okay okay cool uh what about uh let's see what else do we have here what is your favorite david cronenberg film i think it has to be videodrome but like the Videodrome tied with um, Dead Ringers. I mean, I think they're both masterpieces in different ways. I mean, obviously, Dead Ringers is much more as a kind of classical piece of work, but I, I think it's a kind of beautifully speculative um, account of, in a sense, our inability to kind of conceptualize the fact that we're bodies, ultimately. Mm. 
you know um and obviously that, that and it's explored but it's explored with such finesse and um complexity i mean i think jeremy Irons never did anything any better than, than, than that i think that's his the piece. and yeah and, and videodrome is just a brilliant account i mean there's so much i like about the movie it's an account of kind of ontological rupture and decay hmm. um, i've never seen it myself yeah i think uh there's some very interesting sex scenes in i think you know i mean cronenberg does some of the most growing up genuinely adult complex um sex scenes that i think of any director i can think of i mean i could think yeah i don't know i like antonioni as well but i think yeah cronenberg's probably underrated there but i you know so that the, the, there's and, and it's also an account of you know the effects of technology on the way we conceive ourselves again you know, it's, mm. it's, it's technology as an ontological precursor to some kind of change, and that's that's all there. Um, so it's it's multifaceted, and I think it's formal procedures as a piece as a piece of form as well. It's kind of it's it's formal development, um, in a sense, maps onto its 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 kind of ontological and sociopolitical concerns. I mean, it's it's a perfect artifact in many ways. Interesting. Well, I always hate sex scenes in movies. That are always, that's always my least favorite part. I get very uncomfortable and scream. Yeah. I find it very awkward watching like other people have sex in movies. Not necessarily porn. Like I'm not saying I'm above porn or anything like that. But in movies, like when I'm watching a movie, yeah. Whenever there's a sex scene, I I hate it. I I, take, I can never take any kind of uh, audio, visual, or emotional pleasure out. I just find it very. Yeah, I get very yeah. uncomfortable. But that was a strong recommendation. So that sounds like maybe a movie with sex scenes I could maybe at least intellectualize and enjoy that way. I, I think I think because because Cronenberg in a sense respects his characters, so in a sense it's not infantilized sex. Uh-huh. It's, it's 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 sex between people who are in you know, in a sense reacting in complex, multifaceted ways. I think Debbie Harry, for example, is brilliant in in, in Videodrome. And, cool. you know, a, a genuinely layered, interesting, powerful, destabilizing character. So, All right. Well, you have a very well thought out takes on uh, David Cronenberg. So that's very good. Thank you. Um, how about um, here's a question for me, a kind of random one for me. I, I'm curious what your Twitter handle means. Tell us about uh, what is what is a Turing cop? Oh yeah, I, I mean, I, I I feel quite guilty about this because obviously it's it it, it it was an idea that William Gibson, the one of the instigators of of the cyberpunk okay. movement, right. came up with in his book Neuromancer. And the Turing cops are an elite police force who's who are tasked with ensuring that AIs don't get too intelligent. Okay, that's right. Yeah. That's right. So the, you know, so if you if you uh, you know if if you're doing work in artificial general intelligence, you're risking the Turing heat coming to get you, and that's that's not, right. Generally, that's not right. good. They 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 have huge prerogatives and uh, of dispensation. I'm pretty sure Nick Land uses the term here and there in some yeah. essay I've come across. It now that I think about it, I can remember it. Yeah, um, I don't. I can't even remember why I chose it. It just seemed like a good idea at the time. I, and, I think. And I think William Gibson a, hasn't sort of, you know, char- hasn't sort of uh, uh, launched a, a copyright. Um, no, I think um, it's. I, I think it's. Uh, yeah, 
It's, it's a, that's a badass Twitter handle as far as Twitter handles go. I like it. It's also nice and short. It's got that. It's um. How when did you get on Twitter? Hey, um, I think it was around the time I was trying to sell my book, which was what year? Oh God, that would be around two hundred and two thousand and thirteen, two thousand and fourteen. I think it was around then. It just seemed like a a good way of just. Okay. Also, it's a research tool. Actually, it was quite a good way of just encountering things that you couldn't encounter on other social networks because it was a bit more fluid and right. Well, because it, it's interesting because you're you're a little bit older than me uh, from I think a, a generation uh, older than me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, but what's funny is that um, Turing Cop as a Twitter handle is perfect. Uh, representation of kind of the contemporary accelerationist like Twitter aesthetic. Um, yeah. But it's interesting that you you made that name quite a long time ago and uh, you're a bit of an older gentleman. And yet here we are in 2019 yeah, yeah. and you couldn't dream of a better uh, Twitter handle for like acceler- for the accelerationist. Yeah, it's pure that. bricolage. It, there was no <laughs> yeah. kind of, uh, um, yeah, there was, there was no kind of for- prognostication involved on my part. No, well, it, it, that's a good one. I, I, I like your Twitter handle. Um, so, okay. I, I take it you don't have a, you're not, it's a bit ironic in that you're not, uh, you don't have a particular sympathy for the Turing cops, do you? Not really, no. Um, I mean, I think even in, in Neuromancer, they're, 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 they're kind of, you know, kind of conservative. I, I suppose Land would say they're part of the human security system. Right. They're, they're inherently repressive but um i guess if i was living in a you know world threatened by runaway ai i you know might think differently uh, but uh, okay interesting yeah. right so you could kind of are i mean i don't want to go down too much of a rabbit hole but um it is it's kind of interesting because it's basically yeah. a, you could argue that the the political left today is kind of like the well no actually there's a kind of bipartisan uh sympathy for the turing cops i think right uh, the, the, on the left and the right, a lot of people want want the Turing cops to come out in full force. That's actually a kind of left right union, the human security system in some sense. Well, almost all kind of popular entertainment in which there's a an AI or an AI system about to get too smart, it gets kind of squelched, or it doesn't really get smart. It just seems to, you know, like like um, you know, my favorite example is the Cylons in Battlestar Galactica, who are in a sense some level post singularity entities and yet um you know they seem to be incompetent in all sorts of interesting ways like they don't actually know how their own technology works as far as i can see you know so that when somebody blows it up they can't reinvent it you know <laughs> so so it, it, it and that seems to be kind of built into that that kind of dramatic form because in a sense if you're dealing with genuine strangeness it's very hard to actually uh, you know fashion a, a, a narrative around it Right. You know what? While we're at it, I'm I'm curious if you don't mind me asking a somewhat personal question just about your background. It, do you have any linkages, just personally and kind of sociologically, with the the CCRU gang? And Not kind really. Of that? No. Um, I mean, I I have a few friends who were involved in Warwick. You know, around the time um, mm-hmm. Land was working there, so that that the, there's some filiation there. Um, but not, you know, main, mainly through, yeah, mainly through kind of drunken dinner conversations and, you know, right. so, 
yeah so i don't i mean i'm 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 kind of i've had some kind of, i mean i i i met uh, mark fisher a couple of times for mm-hmm. example before his but, in, but intellectually yeah, I think intellectually, I'd say by via people like like Ian Grant, for example, you know, who I, I guess kind of um, turned me on to Churchland and various forms of um, you know scientific and continental materialism. Right. Okay. Um, cool. So, yeah. So there is an affiliation there, but it's 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 not direct. I yeah. Think. Okay. It's, it's, it's fairly indirect. I was just curious because definitely lots of overlaps. Yeah. So intellectually. Yeah. Now I so. was in Cardiff around the time this was happening and that was kind of Wittgenstein, Heideggerian, sort okay. of malaise, I guess it was, it was comparatively dull. I, I think also my, I mean, maybe this is important. I mean, in a sense, intellectually, I also come out, I mean, partly out of analytic philosophy, but I'm also interested in deconstruction and Derrida's work. And in a sense, part of what I'm doing in the book is, is kind of deconstructing our picture of the future by finding gaps and uh, blind spots that I can exploit to show how, in a sense, fragile our conceptual apparatus is. Okay, I see. Very well put. Do you have any opinions on anti-posthumanism? Well, is it even a thing? Uh, (laughs) Apparently, I don't don't know. know Are posthumanists even important enough for to have you know to have, I, I i don't know um i think i'd need to see some examples i mean there are certainly people who who believe that posthumanism is a pernicious idea um because i i guess some of them you know because they're maybe because they're humanists mm, yeah okay no worries i don't uh, know exactly i don't know what i that don't really either. you know um but i mean some of these people are friends you know so it's not <laughs> it's not really you know, it's not a kind of day-to-day issue for me. Um, right. Skulking fear of them. Um, Fair enough. Fair enough. Do you know of any other, or how should I put this? Um, are there particularly brilliant thinkers on these topics that are not as well-known as they should be that you could recommend? Okay. Um, well, I mentioned Reza Negrestani, who, sure. who, who, who I guess is well-known. Yeah. I guess. You know, but um, I mean, I've just started his book, Intelligence of Spirit, and it's essentially a, a kind of Hegelian take on, on AI. So he's trying to think about AI as the means by which we discover what our nature is through, in a sense, implementing that in the form of, uh, you know, computational models. Right. You know, that seems to be a really brilliant idea. You know, I'm looking forward to seeing how he develops it. Right, but what about um, kind of unknown bloggers or artists or just kind okay, of weird creative artists. people? Um, I think as a bio artist, Katie Connor, who's actually lives in Bristol, but she works with um, she works with 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 uh, lab scientists with three D printing, and she's she's kind of interested in the way um, the way scientific processes and industrial processes in a sense of producing new kinds of object, new kinds of representation. Um, so for example, one of her works takes um, uh, an atomic microscope analysis of her blood and uses it to, um, uh, to produce uh, sort of th- three-dimensional constructions and they're, they're, they're kind of weird they're somewhere between representations of something we know know what uh and 
the thing itself. They kind of hover between simulation and, and reality. Um, and I, yeah, I, mean, I think her work's really interesting. Um, uh, Bogna Konior, uh, who works on um, xenofeminism, animism, mm. um, um, ecological politics. Uh, she's a really good writer, well worth um, looking into. I think I've um, seen her around. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, okay. I'm blanking at this point. No, that's okay. Um, I should have had a kind of list of names too. Oh no, no, that's okay. Yeah. Those are good. I mean, I, I mean, an artist I really admire, but I don't, I don't know if she's a post post humanist. Uh, is uh, Mona Hatoum, uh, okay. who who who, who uh, I guess is interested in surveillance and the body, but I think she's a a massively underrated artist. Um, and uh, in a sense, she again, she's she produces objects that that in a sense defy categorization and make us think in a sense reflect on our, the relationships of our minds and bodies to those objects much i think as as katie's do okay great great do you have any opinions on anarcho primitivism um not really i mean it just seems um it just you mean I, the idea we should just relinquish technology and uh, go back to some kind of pre-industrial, pre-linguistic, even state. Basically, yeah, I think it's just uh, it's just a, a, a uh, I think it's just a form of uh, it's just it, it's 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 a method it's it's a method for genocide. I mean, you can't mm. do that with nine billion people. It's, you know, I mean, if if you're prepared to kind of countenance genocide, then I guess you can countenance anarcho-primitivism. But I'm not. Yeah, they're kind of they're kind of turning. Yeah, my topics. politics is boringly vanilla in that way. Okay, fair enough. Yeah, I think the anarcho primitivists are kind of turning cops. I don't yeah. want to give up my technology. I mean, I agree it's fucked up and probably on net harmful, uh, really bad for everyone in the long run. But my view is kind of that once the gen- the genie's out of the bottle, you're not getting that genie yeah. back in the bottle. So uh, plow forward, comrades. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure we can develop technology in more prudent ways. I mean, as I say, I'm not, you know, I'm not some kind of um, frothing at the mouth singularitarian. Uh, I, I think the, the 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 political and ethical prospectus of the book is, in a sense, fairly modest. Um, though there is, you know, there are there are kind of points of contact with accelerationism, but in a sense, I don't, you know, make too many normative claims. And as I said, my, my own politics is pretty, you know, wishy-washy left liberal stuff, you know, which doesn't really merit further discussion, you know? Okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, so does someone wants to know about what classes you teach and do you, do you teach this stuff in classes or some? No, um, sadly not. No. Um, I, I, I teach some continental philosophy, but we, we haven't got a course in, uh, despite my best efforts. I did. I, um, when I was kind of uh, more centrally involved a few years ago, I was kind of suggesting that we could, we could develop, um, a module or part of a module on post-humanism and transhumanism, but uh, nobody bit. So uh, I, I guess it's it's of the nature of the open university that we're, we're quite we we have to appeal to a kind of 
we construct a, a kind of uh, typical student who's not going to be interested in, you know, really mm. exotic stuff like that. And you right. know, I don't know. I mean, it, it may maybe at some point we will. I mean, I, I've supervised some PhDs along those lines, mainly around music and music technology. But um, cool, cool. Yeah. Okay, that's good. Maybe you'll get some uh, new PhD applicants yeah, out. That of seems to be that, that they seem to value me more in the music department, <laughs> to be honest. Right. Well, that makes sense. That's kind of like Deleuze uh, transitioning into the film department yeah. late in life, I can right? Live with that. Yeah, definitely. So, uh, what else we got here? Um, uh, let's see. Do you have opinions about? consciousness do you go into that at all or no yeah, i do um someone wa- specifically wants to know if you subscribe to the uh, idea that there is a particular threshold of complexity or connect connectivity that uh triggers consciousness or is everything uh conscious on a continuum um i think the problem with everything being conscious on a continuum is it's hard to see how how what kind of models we could i mean that's that's kind of some kind of panpsychism okay so the panpsychist believes that even at the most kind of basic level you know electrons quarks whatever there's some kind of proto mentality proto consciousness uh and that's meant to explain how consciousness can kind of emerge from the physical world except it doesn't really I, I can't see how it, it provides us a handle on that because, in a sense, there's no model that I know of, of how proto-phenomena come together and form phenomena. I mean, that seems to be no more tractable than explaining how consciousness arises from um, stuff that doesn't have it. So I, I, I tend to think of consciousness as um, a property of complex networks Um some it probably in probably essentially probably involving some kind of higher order representational activity you know so thoughts about thoughts uh um uh sharing of information between different agencies in the mind and that's seen that's kind of broadly kind of global workspace idea that that the consciousness emerges when where where minds have need need some kind of higher order model of their own activity, which can then direct, in in a sense, uh, organise their relationships with the, the outside world. Um, and I don't see any reason not to believe that consciousness isn't simply a function of complexity, rather than being kind of written into the sub substrate of the of the world. I mean, I, 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 one of the positions I, I explore in the book is what I call dark phenomenology, and that's the idea that we're not intimately related with consciousness. We don't have a kind of direct grasp of what consciousness really is, simply through being conscious, because right. there, there are too many. Uh, structures that, in a sense, defy um, any kind of introspective or um, reflective grasp. So, merely, yeah. So, so this idea that Damon Chalmers has that we're kind of intimately acquainted with consciousness, I would reject. And on that basis, I'd see no reason to, to see why consciousness can't be explained uh, in, in, in pretty pretty much materialist terms. Right. So, function okay. of complexity. 
I so it's a longer I answer than you wanted, probably. No, no, that's perfect. I should have asked you, actually, now that I'm thinking about it. I should have asked you if you have a hard end time you need to wrap this up by. I don't want to over... Uh, well, let's see. What's the time? Um, maybe it's another ten, quarter ten of an hour. Yeah. About, I mean, we can go um, another quarter of an hour, 20 minutes, depending on how, how yeah, no, investment we feel. Yeah, no, I was basically bringing it to a close, but I just wanted to make sure you didn't yeah. have to run right now. Yeah, no, I don't have to run. Um, it's getting towards eleven uh, where I am. So okay, yeah, uh, yeah. So I'm, maybe I'm just one or two more questions. Slur, yeah. you know. <laughs> Definitely, I know what you mean. I yeah. I remember when I was in the UK, I had to do all these live streams late at night for all the American people, yeah, yeah. and it gets hard. It gets hard. I know what you mean. Um, okay, I was just checking in with you. So maybe just one one more question sure, then. Yeah. Um, see if I can find a particularly good one. I'm kind of scrolling through. Um. Okay, it's a bit random, but how about this one? Uh, do you have opinions, thumbs up, thumbs up or thumbs down on Haraway cyborg feminism? Um, no, I mean, I really, I really admire Haraway's work. Um, in fact, when I was working on Derrida, kind of, because when I was reading Derrida, I wanted to kind of make Derrida into some kind of materialist, which was really hard. And then I encountered the Cyborg Manifesto, and I thought, this is great, because in a sense, Haraway's kind of taking this stuff, she's mashing it with molecular biology and cybernetics, and sort of an anti-essentialist feminism, and doing something really interesting and and playful and enjoyable. Um, and, you know, somehow embedded in a kind of broadly materialist account of the world. So I, I've got a lot of time for that. Um, I'd like to engage more with xenofeminism, which is the kind of, you know, the latest iteration of that attempt to engage feminism and technology and to think about the contingency of gender roles, for example, through 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 a kind of technological or science fictional lens. I mean, I've, I've got a lot of time for that. So um, I don't know if that answers your question. I yeah, think it's fascinating. Yeah. I'd like to write more about that. No, that's cool. Yeah, that was just uh, one of the questions that people were throwing up. I would, yeah. I would really like to have on the live stream some of the xenofeminist people. But if I'm shooting straight with you, I've been too afraid to ask them because I'm afraid that they're like too woke for me, and they're, they're going to think that I'm well, like too the, contaminated for them. I, I, I think the nice thing about the xenofeminists I know, um, and I'm not naming names, but um, you know, they're they're. Uh, you know they're 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 interested in kind of broaching uncomfortable and challenging ideas. You know, and it's it's not about simply being kind of ideologically sounder than you. I mean, I think there, right. you know, I think there are some issues, for example, about trans identity or just current, you know, current current sexual politics is 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 different because it's real people kind of being affected by it. But I think at the theoretical end, I think I think I think most of them are game for, you know, speculative, wide-ranging discussion. I don't think you should worry too much about that. That's good to know. I might have to I might have to name drop you if I send an email to one of them. Yeah, I yeah. I'm not going to do it online because uh, you know I don't want to kind of introduce anybody. <laughs> oh no, of course, yeah, you know. No, no, no worries at all. It's just yeah. it's it's interesting. It's a difficult political environment because. Yeah, you know, but people have, I, yeah, yeah. But as I said, I think I think the whole point of 
you know, the, the interesting side of xenofeminism is, is precisely that it's, it's a politics of alienation. It's not about simply being kind of, uh, um, you know, sort of ideologically comfortable, at least at its best. And right. So I, well, I, I don't. I think you should find that to be fertile ground. Right. Oh, and I, I definitely do find it fertile ground personally. Yeah. I mean, I think the xenofeminist stuff is basically some of the best stuff that's come out in the past few years under the heading of feminism. Yeah. So I'm, I'm quite sympathetic and quite interested for sure. Um, it's more that, you know, I have a, let's say I have a kind of high tolerance personally for all kinds of uh, dubious ideas and sketchy figures. And I just appreciate and respect that lots of other people have a, have not quite such a high tolerance uh, that I, that I have. And I think a lot of people see, I mean, I, th I see my live stream and my kind of media experiments as honestly quite tame really, but yeah. I've been, I've been unpleasantly surprised how many people out there think I'm kind of like alt-right or something ridiculous like this. And so yeah. I, I'm, I'm kind of timid about asking onto the show certain uh, groups of people because I don't want them to, you know, fear that uh, they're getting, they're getting involved with, someone sketchy <laughs> yeah i think you know i think that's something you'd need to explore with, with them but i can certainly suggest some names yeah 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 no well that's that's neither here nor there um so yeah unless you have any other kind of closing comments or anything you well, no, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm fine no it's been a blast thanks yeah no this was really fun and yeah. really edifying I, yeah. I appreciate it um and let's stay in touch shall we yeah okay justin thank you all right david take it easy Cheers. and you bye bye Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. If you thought that was cool, then don't forget to subscribe. And it would be even cooler if you left a review. I'd appreciate that. And yeah, just to learn more about what I'm up to, you can check out theotherlifenow.com. That's all. And I will see you around the internet.